Welcome back to the Millennial Pastors Podcast. I'm Michaela Johnson. And I'm Caleb Haynes. And we're your guest co-hosts for season 10. We're here having conversations around creation care and what it means to be Christian on planet Earth. Over this season, we'll be chatting with scientists, theologians, and other Christians who are doing the work of Earth care in their specific context. So we hope that this will bear fruit for you and your ministry and your work in the world. Okay, cool. Here they are. I'm sitting across the table from a friend of mine in Washington, D.C. with the Reverend Dr. Jessica Mormon. So, uh, welcome. How are you? Doing well, doing well. It is a real pleasure to be here. And again, I feel like we've been connected for a couple of years now that we discovered that this is our first time meeting in person. Yeah, it is crazy. It's funny when you zoom some with someone for so many times, you're like, we've hung out, but we've virtually hung out. So it's similar. Yeah, very cool. So we're we're in DC. This is your stomping ground, but uh we're here. I mean my friend JT is here. He's hiding on the other side of the table quietly. Hello. And uh we're here for the National Climate and Faith Forum that's going down tomorrow. And uh thought we'd take the opportunity and Hang out for a minute with uh, Dr. Mormon, and uh, who is the Vice President for Science and Policy at the Evangelical Environmental Network. Uh, you can correct any of your bio that I get wrong. Uh, you, you got your PhD in Earth and Atmospheric Sciences from the Georgia Institute of Technology, and you research isotopic geochemistry. Is that right? Yeah, is that right? <laughs> Essentially, I'm just a professional nerd. Yes. Awesome. Right. Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. Yeah. Yep. I had that. Man, I don't know. I don't know if we want to go into it, but I could just wax lyrical about yeah. isotope. Okay. Well, let's put a pin in that because I think we'll come back around to that because, yeah, because that's, that's, that's something. Uh, and you also, are you still co-passionate with your husband? Church? Okay. Yeah. And what's the name of your church? Grace Capital City. Here, right in the heart of Washington. Great. The capital city. Awesome. And how long have you guys been doing that? Seven years. Seven. This is our seven-year anniversary. That's great. And you planted the church. We planted the church. We uh, we came up from Atlanta, Georgia, with a five-month-old, mm-hmm. and decided this is a great time to move cities away from family with a baby and start a church. That's awesome. Yeah. It's been a new lunch year. Yeah. When you the call, you got you got to pick up the phone. Yeah, you just say yes. That's what's up. So you're a climate scientist, you're pastor, your mother. Uh, you you've been on Good Morning America. Your uh, your faith climate famous. It's so cool. So I'm gonna get you to sign my IPCC report. Uh, you know, just uh, just for kicks. So yeah. So great. Thanks for thanks for. Sit down with me. Absolutely. And I have to say, it's great to be in the room with another faith climate famous person. I mean, I did, can I just, yeah. I just give a shout out for garbage theology? Sounds like you know how we're going to get there. Yeah, that's right. Shameless book plug. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, I thought you were going to say JT for a second. I was like, oh, what, a, what is he going to And uh, Yeah. Hey, what's your status? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Love it. So let's, uh, maybe we just jump in. I'd love to hear 
you know, if you could just a cliff notes or whatever you want to do with your personal story and how you got here, basically, and and more specifically, you know, if you want to put your finger on, you know, when did that sort of creation care, quote unquote, journey begin with you? When did you first really begin connecting those dots, uh, you know, for your own story and, and uh, you know, between your faith and the environment and anywhere you want to jump in there? Sure. But, sure. Well... So I've thought a lot about this. How, how to pinpoint, how did I become a climate scientist? And ultimately, where it started was because I wanted to go into ministry. I was a 17-year-old. I'd grown up in, in church, and I grew up in East Tennessee, grew up in uh, the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains. So I was just spoiled. Spoiled. The beauty of God's creation. Yeah. Um, I love this book. Yeah. So beautiful, so beautiful. And so I think the the beauty captured my heart and my imagination. Um, but also just a deep passion for serving God and serving others. And so at my church uh, uh, and on youth group, a big question was always, what is God calling you to do? Is God calling you to the full-time ministry? And I'm just, you know, you're in those, the, those youth group things and everyone rushes to the front. And I was like, yes, I feel like I'm one of, I feel like God's calling me in a full-time ministry. But I didn't know what that looked like. Mm-hmm. And so I simply prayed mm-hmm. and I said, Lord, what, what would you have me do? Mm-hmm. And each time I prayed it, just kept, kept coming back to the same thing. Study geology. And it was like, what? <laughs> like, like, yeah. Uh, let me hear my prayer reward. Let me put out the fleece again. Let me put out a prayer again. What? And I, I didn't see how that fit. I had no idea how geology fitted with ministry. And even just sort of a feeling of, can I even be a scientist and a Christian? No. Just sort of it felt like this it just wasn't a disconnect. And so I, I was having a real struggle. Um, at that time, and especially as looking to go into college and start my freshman year, I had to start making some decisions. And so um, then uh, the summer before going off to college, I was on a mission trip with my church, and our, our group leader asked the question that every rising college freshman gets, of what are you going to do at college? What are you going to study? And I just spilled my guts because <laughs> I'd been sitting on this for a really long time of feel like God is calling me into ministry, calling me to study geology, and I don't know how that fits all together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spilled, I supposedly spilled my guts to him, and he listened very patiently, which was really kind. And then at the end, he just, he just looked at me and he said, Jessica, don't you realize I'm a geologist? <laughs> That's, oh my gosh. That's amazing. Oh, my jaw hit the floor. I, I really, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe, one, that a church leader and a geologist was right in my path, having this conversation in the field exactly of what God was calling me into. And so that just essentially, it just encouraged me and said, listen, you can, if you've really prayed about this, you can trust God. Just be obedient. Just follow him step by step. Um, he won't lead you astray. And so I did because of that, <laughs> that conversation and that meeting. Um, and so I, I, I 
became a geology major. I did not know how that fit with ministry, but God was gracious. He didn't leave me waiting for too long. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my uh, in a freshman geology course, we were uh, studying about past climates and how you can use the rock record in isotopes mm-hmm. to figure out what see what you did there climate was like in the past. Yeah. Essentially, God has left us these little breadcrumbs, these clues in his creation to figure out what climate was up to before we had weather stations to measure it. And I found that fascinating. It was so cool. But also at that same moment, I can only attribute it to the Holy Spirit speaking to me in science class. (laughs) It plumped down Matthew 22, God's greatest commandment, Jesus's greatest commandment to us, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And reminded me, I'd heard about climate change. I'd also heard that it hurts the most vulnerable first and worst. Mm. And that is where it all came together. It's like, wow, I can, this is ministry. By studying climate science, I can help solve this huge and growing problem Mm. and make sure that uh, those, all of us, but especially those who are vulnerable, who Jesus calls us to serve and make sure that they have a healthy environment and safe climate to thrive in. And so that set my path on becoming a climate scientist as part of a ministry. Wow, that's awesome. I, I love that. I have so many thoughts with that. And along with that, every local church should have a resident climate scientist uh, on staff. Uh, but, you know, as far as hashtag goals, I suppose. But uh no, I love that, Ned, and I love because I think that's something, and maybe we can circle back to this later, but I think that in in there is a really key, important discussion uh, around uh, that how our faith uh, permeates every discussion, right? And the, and there's some there can be so much just unnecessary fear involved with, you know, I hate to say it, but like science and and and. Uh, right as as this wearing this sort of secular label and that all we really need to know as the people of god is right how to say a certain prayer and abide by a certain uh holiness set of values right uh personal holiness set of values and et cetera et cetera uh rather than well what if the the more we are able to understand creation, the more we might find ourselves better connected with the creator and, uh, and, and that we have this opportunity to embody our faith literally with, with, with flesh in this conversation. I'm about to preach. So I'm going to back out. Then bring the tambourines for that. Um, yeah. So I, I love that. That's, that's really cool. So, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I'm sure, well, you get the best of both worlds because, uh, because of your professions, but um, one of the things that happens, obviously, with any profession, right, is, is that, uh, say, if you're a theologian, um, you, you know, you get in these sort of, uh, you know, you've, you've spent like countless hours and degrees and money and energy learning this thing. And then you get into this topic and suddenly everyone's a theologian, you know what I'm saying? And that happens for doctors and everyone. But that especially happens right now uh, in the climate and environmental conversation, uh, right? And so 
as a climate scientist and is is technically like paleo climate science? Do you make that distinction, or does it? Is it? It's just okay. Bit of both. Yeah, no both. Okay. Depends on who I'm talking to. Yeah, let's yeah, good answer. But as someone who actually has a firsthand grip on understanding in this scientific community about climate change, so for some of us in in the back row here, right, just pretend that there's there's zero uh, knowledge here for everyone who's listening. Just pretend. Uh, right, as as a professional source on the information, would you be willing to just maybe take a minute for those of us in the back and and describe, you know, I'm just going to say climate change. Just what what's going on right now from a from a big picture uh, with with our climate if, in so many words, right? Sure. And, and we can spend all day on this, and and obviously, but uh, maybe just to kind of grab some big picture, and then we'll draw it down from there. Yeah, I'll do my best to distill it. No, um, and even just to demystify science mm-hmm. for me, it's simply studying God's creation. Mm-hmm. Oh, shoot! Yeah. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And um, as you were saying, is when we by studying His create God's creation, we do get to know the Creator better, and that was why studying science was such a joy because I got to. And it's my job. Right. Study the wonderful, amazing, incredible world that God has made that proclaims his glory and goodness. And I get to, I don't know, just geek out on how magnificent he is. So that was that's that's what I love about science. Um, and even just uh down the road at the Museum of the Bible, they have a new exhibit called Science and the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. They talk about how God reveals himself through his word, but also through his works, mm-hmm. including creation. And so, um, just, a, just a little sidebar there. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to, to climate, um, so we all know that climate's always changed. That's what I studied as a paleoclimatologist, looking at uh, how has Earth's climate changed throughout uh, uh, its history. And I believe one thing is that uh, what we can say clearly is that climate is never static in the big picture of time. (laughs) It is always in flux. It's always changing. But... We've been in this special moment in time um, in uh, several thousand years of stability mm. of what we call a warm period. Mm. Um, but it, Earth's climate has been colder at times. We've had ice ages, but we're in one of those, uh, the scientific term is interglacial periods. <laughs> we are in the period between the ice ages where it's warm. And I'm so grateful to to live in the warm period. I don't think I really live in an ice age. Um, but often when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about how is the climate changing today? How are we um, moving from what's been our status quo for several thousand years? How are we moving from that? How are things changing and why? Why are they changing? And it really comes down to a very simple question. Um, do we as humans have the power to change the atmosphere, to change the chemistry of the atmosphere? And I've been thinking a lot about this, and there's sort of a, uh, when it comes to climate, there is a, a do not touch button 
kind of that red switch that just don't mess with that switch. Just do other things. Just don't flip that switch. And um, one of you, what that switch does is uh, change the chemistry of the atmosphere and specifically around how much heat trapping gases are in the atmosphere, yeah. um, namely carbon dioxide. And um, what we're seeing today is that all of the culprits of past climate change, natural causes, what caused the ice ages, it's not happening right now. Those common culprits aren't happening. But what is, is that we are increasing the amount of heat trapping gases, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that's causing um, our planet to warm. Mm -hmm. That's where we get the term global warming. And um, just like when you uh, boil a pot of water, it starts causing things to bubble, things to, to change, and chaos is changing our weather patterns, which impacts how much rainfall we have falling on our farmlands and to grow our food. Our, our sea levels are rising because of melting ice caps and impacting our seafront properties and communities, causing more floods, more droughts. Um, wreaking havoc, uh, taking us from that stable status quo into a more volatile um, uh, environment because of this added, added heat that's coming from increasing CO2. And that's coming from our use of where we're getting our energy, which is carbon-based energy. Right. And so we're taking our, our carbon-based energy from whether that's coal or natural gas, that all have these carbon molecules that go into carbon dioxide, taking it out of the geologic store where it's buried underground and short-circuiting the natural system, putting it up in the atmosphere, and that's heating things up. And essentially you can think of Earth has got a fever, um, raising it a couple degrees, just like a couple degrees for us if when we run a fever, that um, disrupts that delicate balance that has been in place for thousands of years mm. and is starting to stir things up. Wow. Let's get, I, I want to dig just a little bit more in, into uh, that, uh, specifically with your, your specific background and the, the isotopic geochemistry. <laughs> but uh, at, as I understand it, I think, right, that the reason that we know that uh, that our climate is being altered uh, through anthropogenic changes, through human-generated increases of CO2 and methane and, and that sort of thing, but more particularly CO2, is because there that, that, now correct me if I'm wrong, that we can actually measure... Uh, the kinds of CO2 in our atmosphere and look at that uh, isotopic signature. Here's me trying to be smart like you. Uh, that look at that the number, I guess, quote, the fraction number of isotopes and, and measure that and, and actually look and, and see what kind of CO2 is in the atmosphere. Is that, am I, am I on track? You are absolutely on track. What is, again, this is another just cool thing about God's creation that just points back to how magnificent he is. So an isotope 
is a different flavor of the same type of atom. So we've heard about carbon-14. The regular flavor is carbon-12. And so that simply means that... like the vanilla of carbon. It's the vanilla of carbon. You can come to carbon-14 and it's like, you know, it's it's like Neapolitan. (laughs) So the strawberry, um, add a little bit of extra flavor. And... um, when we look at these isotopes, again, they're all carbons, but they just have an extra new tribe. Okay. It's just, it just makes it heavier or okay. lighter. Sure. And because of that heaviness, um, you can start to separate out those different flavors. And so um, uh, you, can, and you can use these isotopes to figure out all sorts of different questions throughout science. It's just so elegant, this really minute change in weight in the mass of these atoms. And it tells you just the, a wealth of information. So if you're looking for something really interesting to study and learn about, look up isotopes. <laughs> um, and so one of the really cool things that um, looking at the isotopes of carbon um, is looking at the flavor of carbon-12 versus carbon-13. And that can tell you, where is this CO2 coming from? Is it coming from a natural source, like volcanoes? Mm. Or breathing, would that be? Breathing, okay. yes, mm. yes. Um, or is it coming from our carbon-based energy, our fossil fuels, which are um, dead plant matter? <laughs> And they have more of the carbon-12s in them. Mm-hmm. The volcanic sources of CO2 have more of the 13s. Okay. And so whenever we then look and measure um, what type of isotopes are in the carbon, is in the carbon dioxide that is filling up our atmosphere right now, mm-hmm. we see that it's got more of the 12s mm. in it. A greater ratio of those 12s than you'd expect from a natural source, and it has exactly the fingerprint of coming from our carbon-based energy from fossil fuels. And so that shows us that there's not some secret source of volcanic activity right. that putting all this CO2 out of the atmosphere. It's, it's, it's our activity of, of short-circuiting that natural cycle. And again, volcanoes are one of those common culprits of past climate change. But whenever it was the driver, it was at such a scale that, like, all of India was covered in volcanic activity. And so we'd expect to see that. We would know if that we know if that was the case, right? It would be really evident. Right. And actually, the, the relatively small volcanic eruptions that were happening these days actually act to cool the atmosphere. I don't know if you've heard about the year without a summer in the oh, 1880s. Yeah, in Krakatoa. Not only when the volcanoes erupt, they're not just putting out CO2, but also all of the ash. Right. They're blinding out as the sun. Yeah. They're blocking the sun. Yeah. Yeah. And so they end up, end up having a bit of a cooling effect. Mm. Wow. And so with those, looking at those isotopes, looking for massive volcanic eruptions, we don't have those today. Right. And we can, again, right. fingerprint that CO2 and coming from our activity. Right our cars and our energy and our mm-hmm. infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, I think that's, I think that's such a helpful thing to, to grab, even if you don't write, um, you know, so just someone such as myself, even if I can't, you know, maybe explain it with that detail, 
it's, I think it's very, very helpful information for us just to think, okay, right, we can measure this, we can look at this. Because I think the temptation a lot is that there's this uh, mystery shroud that's placed over climate change uh, as if we can't know or as if we don't know one what occurred in history or and but but you know i can sit here and talk to you and it's like oh well we actually not only can we know we we do know these things we've measured these things and this is the gift of science right or the scientific method uh of 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 testing and looking and probing and measuring uh right and so uh, and i think that's that's man that's really helpful yeah, yeah. I, I think you really bring up a really great point of, I love getting these questions as a paleoclimatologist because they're the questions that sparked me to study this man, and sparked my colleagues to study this and our colleague scientists who came before us. We've been studying this for over 150 years, asking these questions and we've got some good answers out there. And so it's what's up. Let's use those answers to better understand the world and make it a, a, a healthier, a safer, a brighter place for our kids. Right. Absolutely. That's so cool. Um, so I know that this uh, conference we're here at, right, in Dirk, um, you know, the framework that that gets talked about a lot, I, I think maybe originated somewhat in part through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, out of the UN, who, right, has a scientist from all over the world or a part of and, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, but but in particularly in the 2018 document, they talk about that mile marker of the year 2030, mm-hmm. and, and it's important to, right, they talk about trying to limit our you know, our temperature raised to 1.5 degree centigrade, right, by 2023. Is that something that you spend a lot of time thinking about or talking about or like a like a goal post in, in your work, kind of turning the turning the door toward like talking to policymakers and that and that sort of thing, right? Um, do, do you find that people are sort of listening to these numbers and and, and thinking more, uh, I guess, strategically and like with seven seven years until 2030 like yeah yeah. i think i think that um it gives us a really helpful goalpost to aim for but one thing that i've seen that it 2030 has kind of become the new 2012 (laughs) of a misconception that once we hit 2030 the whole world's gonna fall apart Mm -hmm. and what's what's Inflating and um, counterproductive with with that framing of making it the new 2012 is it does lend for others of like, oh, when you said 2030 was going to roll around and the world was going to fall apart, you just must be making all this up. Right. So it's got to be... We're clearly still here and breathing. And, right. Yes. Yeah. And it can be used as, as one alarmism and an excuse not to act <laughs> because I don't believe that that's what's going to happen. Hmm. So what the 2030 mile marker really is, is is giving us a a goalpost to shoot for of our job of avoiding, quote unquote, dangerous 
climate change, the most dangerous impacts of climate change, we need to have our economic system or energy systems or transportation systems well underway of transitioning towards clean sources of energy, non-emitting sources of energy by that time. Yeah. Um, otherwise, we've just made our, our job that much harder to avoid dangerous climate change. But one thing to put in mind is that we've got communities across the world um, and across the country and in our own backyards who are like, wait, I've already been impacted <laughs> by climate change. Um, I've already, I actually, even for myself, my family, we, uh, uh, lost a family home in, uh, wildfires back in 2016 in Gallenberg, Tennessee, which is not a place that you expect to see extreme wildfires that over, uh, 1400, um, holes and buildings burned and 1300 folks lost, I mean, 13, 13 people unfortunately lost their lives. And our family was one of those that lost a home. And so uh, we're so thankful that all of our loved ones are fine. But for, for those already being impacted by climate-fueled extreme weather, it's already bad. Um, and so I think one thing that's really, I found most helpful from that 2018 report was another message of every bit of warming matters, every bit of carbon reduction matters. Yeah. And for me... What I find really helpful is uh, just that urgency. We need to keep on making gains and shifting towards cleaner, cleaner energy, cleaner cars. Um, not because the world's going to fall apart in 2030, right. but that gives us a good goalpost to set some, some yeah. goals toward. And whole, yeah, uh, man, that there's just so much there. But uh, I think that that kind of makes me think about how. I think the temptation, too, is to say sometimes that, well, you know, none of these things are going to, to fix this. And there's there's obviously a, a dirty aspect even to clean energy and and all of this. Things. And so you can easily start making this argument that, well, none of this really matters because none of one of these things is going to fix any of this. Right. And then you end up doing nothing at all uh, rather than. Quite literally, every single decision that we make has the potential and the ability to improve or dis disprove, make words right, with, uh, our, our climate, our environment and creation, and uh, right in what does it mean to do the the best next thing in front of us? And I and I and I do think that's a really important conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, so we we're thinking about that. You're working here in DC, connecting with you know. Uh, on on one hand, right, um, churches and Christians, but on the other, more directly, like policymakers and those sorts of conversations. What are maybe some of the 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 conversations you're having right now, or sort of the bigger ones that come to mind when when it comes to connecting some of those dots, uh, spending time with uh, policymakers and that sort of thing. Uh, maybe some of the changes that you're working on or things going on that you'd be willing to share. Um, what does it look like? Put some flesh on for us. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we at, at the Evangelical Environmental Network, whenever we're looking at policy, we evaluate it. This is our, our through-point test that we judge it against. Does it defend life? Is it making sure that the, the lives, the health of our, our children, our friends, our family, vulnerable members of our community is protected and defended? 
That's at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. Second, um, protecting God's creation. So often whenever we are protecting our health, and ultimately for us, um, when we talk about the term creation care or climate care, it's people care That's too. Right. So good. And but the side benefits of that is the rest of creation is protected too, which is great. Mm-hmm. And then also looking at how as we transition to these new opportunities for cleaner technology, cleaner energy, cleaner manufacturing, this is creating new opportunities, new family-sustaining jobs uh, for, for folks in our communities and across the country and across the world. Um, because when we talk about sustainability, there's environmental sustainability, but also we've got to fold in to make sure that there is economic sustainability. Because that's that's the, the myth that is out there is that good environmental action means bad economic mm-hmm. action, that it's bad for the economy. And that's just a total myth. And um, the fastest growing job sector is in clean energy, adding millions of jobs each year. Um, here in the U.S. And so whenever we are talking with policymakers, they're thinking about, well, how is the quality of life in my district? How is the overall quality of life in my state? And so whenever we're able to look at, I think of climate solutions and climate policy is actually um, benefit multipliers. Mm -hmm. It's good for our health. It's good for God's creation. And it creates new job opportunities. And whenever we're able to show that it ticks all of those boxes and with certain policies, that's when we start to get traction and uh, uh, really taking action. Um, The Inflation Reduction Act, if uh, listeners have heard of that, that was passed uh, last year and is the largest piece of climate legislation that has ever been passed. You wouldn't know it from the name. What's it centered around? inflation, the economy. But all of those climate provisions are actually uh, uh, inflation busters <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, uh, economic boosters. Mm-hmm. And so, um, again, when you're able to look at that overall well-being, overall sustainability in our, our, our jobs, our household economies, and the environment, that, that starts getting things moving. I love that. Yeah, that's... Again, very similar to the isotope conversation, right? Let's let's get down here to the policies and to the and to the meat and to like the jobs and what we're actually talking about. Because uh, I I think right often we get stuck in this work and it and it feels partisan and we use terms like the liberal agenda or whatever the labels we start labeling and uh, and and we should in the church right we should be the first ones to say. Hey, I'm not gonna let's let's not pull up the walls. Let's just not other. Let's like let's hold off on the name calling. But right, and you and I know, right, this is part of God's agenda in the world, like as far as like caring for creation. And I love that you led with right, here's our first tick box is caring for the least of these. And uh and that that's that's so crucial. But I will pause for a moment and just play and entertain this political framework question because uh, I don't want to ignore it uh, and and ask maybe how is this work like if we're gonna if we're gonna if we're gonna play a little bit I guess here with this you know it gets partisan etc 
how how is this work also very reflective? Do you think of conservative values? And uh, I don't know. I just like to hear what you think about that off the top of your hand. Oh, it is rooted in conservative values. You look. I love those. Uh, 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 there's a, a fantastic book from a historian at Texas Tech, Mark Stoll, looks at the religious roots of the American environmental movement. And where does it start? It starts in the church. It starts with the theology of John Calvin. It starts with the theology of John Wesley and the stewardship doctrine. So whenever I say the names John Calvin and John Wesley, these are just some like sidewalk preachers here. These are pillars of theologic thought that are the underpin um, so many of our, our of the American church, the American uh, denominations. And they lay out a theology of stewardship, of caring for God's creation, especially as it comes to agriculture to city or those their followers then apply it to their jobs farming agriculture um you look at some of the first uh settlements of the puritans and they're drawing on that calvinist theology to uh city plan <laughs> to set aside land for the next generation recognizing that they were just stewards for the time that God has, has put them on this earth. Yeah. And that unfolds into uh, fueling the conservation movement. Teddy Roosevelt, um, I grew up in a, a reformed church, hearing that this doctrine of stewardship was sparked. Um, and just all of his work as being the conservation president, the national park system. Um, but something has gotten lost in the midst of it, of um, where, uh, especially at the around the 60s, of letting the culture war speak to us more than scripture, I think. Why? And has really uh, caused that, started that partisan separation. But you, again, you look back over from 1970 to uh, the early 2000s, every single major piece of climate and environmental legislation was led by Republican administrations. The Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Global Change Research Act. Mm. That's Nixon. That's George H.W. Bush. Um, And so there is so much to look back to of conservative values. And for myself, as I look at this, um, I just even look back to my family values of personal responsibility. Clean up your own mess. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. a, a lot of times one of the questions that uh, uh, we get around climate change is, well, well, God's in control, right? He's in control and we can leave it to him. But again, we look back to Genesis chapter 1 to verse 26. Again, he puts dominion in our hands and has given us the ability to impact his creation. Impact what we see in Genesis chapter 3 to the point that it falls with. And that we have the power to uh, uh, keep it good Mm -hmm. and we're 
partner with God in his work of restoring all creation, we're for ill. And so we have to take on that personal responsibility and take a really clear-eyed look at what are our actions doing to the creation, doing to the natural environment, doing to our neighbors and their ability to have clean air, clean water, and a safe climate. Right. And put that responsibility where it is and um, and not always just say we abdicate that responsibility and say, well, God will fix that. Yeah, gosh, that's, that, that is the big one, I, I think, is we, uh, because especially things like environmental care, climate change feels so huge. It feels like one of those, one of those God's going to take care of that uh, bumper stickers kind of situation, you know. It's, it's, I pray that he does. Yeah. I, do I pray that he does. So while I pray that, yeah. being the hands and feet of Christ and right. taking action to this indeedly. Uh, Ray C. Anderson is a businessman out of uh, Georgia, Georgia Carpet, Mountain Dalton, Georgia. Um, he had became a leader in sustainable business in large part because of a childhood hymn he used to sing about brighten the corner where you are. And he looked around at his carpet business and asked, how can I brighten the corner that I'm in? That led him to, well, let me make sure that I am taking, I am adopting sustainable practices Mm -hmm. in this and led a whole revolution in sustainable business and while increasing profit margins at the same time. Again, how can we look at uh, the garden that God has entrusted to each of us, whether that's our homes, our households, things that we buy? And make those everyday decisions yeah. in our businesses that God has given us to steward, our vocations that He's given us, uh, assigned us to. How can we brighten that corner that we're in? It doesn't have to be right. this big, complicated thing. Right. Just take both parties. God's putting in front of that. Absolutely. And how and how is the world seeing? Yeah, no, Christ through us. And how is that? How is that? Um, you know, fleshing out in the world through through our lives as. Christians and um, and like you said, like I could go right now and get a tractor and just clobber uh, my garden, right? I could go, I could just destroy it. I could ride my car through it, uh, or I could steward it. And so uh, we are, we make these choices every single day on a microcosmic level, and we are making these choices today on a macrocosmic level, uh, right? That is that is of course less visible. Because we don't have a macrocosmic view of the world, uh, except for the internet, which is fairly skewed. Uh, but um, yeah, I think that's in, that's an incredibly, you know, we are, um, yeah, I, I love that. We we are being conservative, and that's what we're talking about here, um, and that that's sort of a lot of the values that they're at play. Uh, I know something that you uh, that we've talked about before. Um, maybe to get into one more little piece here is air quality. Because mm. uh, I know that, right, when you're working with, with policymakers and whatnot, right, you're not just talking about climate change, but these are drawing down into other real issues in which we're affecting creation in the environment. And so I know air quality where I live, I think sometimes we just want to say, like, 
what are we talking about? You know, we'll drive, maybe I'll drive down 440 and the, and the sign will be up and we'll be like, air quality alert. And I'm thinking like, the air looks the same today as it did every other day. And I think especially in the South where there's trees everywhere and you're like, I'm pretty sure we're good. Uh, and so it's, again, it's one of those unseen ways uh, that we're trying to draw attention to. And uh, how do you approach this conversation? Uh, you know, I know we've been emailing about soot and PM2.5 and the EPA thing going on next week. So maybe just unpack a little bit of, of your work in, in that aspect as well and why that's important. Yeah, no, that's so good. I, I had a similar experience as what you just described of pollution is a problem of the past. We don't have rivers on fire like it was right. the 70s. Uh, things are good. Uh, and what I learned, um, especially with coming to the uh, Evangelical Environmental Network, and I really credit Reverend Mitch Hescox, our president, for leading in this area, um, not only within the church, but also within the broader climate movement, of uh, being one of those voices. There are so many others also point out um, the father of environmental justice, Dr. Robert Bullard, has been lifting this up. Um, it's not just about climate <laughs> we're fighting for. We still have uh, air quality problems across the country. 40%, over 40% of areas of counties in America have unhealthy air, according to the American Lung Association. That's 60, I think there's, there's 63 million people that are, are impacted by this um, every year. And one of the insidious things about this is that actually because we can't see it, it can actually be more dangerous. And so you mentioned soot. Um, it's also known as PM2.5, which is particulate matter, particle pollution that is, is smaller than the width of our hair, talking 2.5 microns. And uh, in my science world, of when we talked microns, we knew that was small. Yeah. <laughs> we knew it's probably going to measure that with a ruler. Uh, and what happens is this tiny invisible soot that's coming from our traffic exhaust, um, from uh, burning coal for our energy, um, from wildfires that are um, causing, that are climate-driven, as well as some other um, contributors to that. Um, these tiny particles of soot... We don't see them, but we breathe them in. And it lodges in our hearts, in our lungs, in our brains, and wreaks havoc. You look at the medical research, and you see the connections between asthma, triggering asthma attacks, and causing asthma with heart disease and lung disease, and even um, Parkinson's, new connections with Alzheimer's, it looks like. Then you think about our, our most vulnerable, our children. Um, and even before they draw their first breath, me as a pregnant mother, right, breathing in this air impacts um, uh, uh, unborn children and their development. Uh, it, it's when you look at it that way and you really pay attention to the medical research, uh, you look and you see that um, estimated 200 thousand Americans die each year from air pollution. Oh my God. 200,000, 9 million 
across the world. It is a bigger cause, a larger cause of death than uh, malaria, AIDS, all forms of violence combined. It's, it's staggering, but it's this, this silent killer yeah. that we haven't paid as much attention to. And so when you, the, the good news about that is that poor air quality and the main causes of, of soot are the same causes that are driving climate change and more CO2 in our atmosphere. And so that's why I talk about climate solutions as benefit multipliers. When we address the climate problem, we're addressing the air quality problem. When we address the air quality problem, we're addressing the climate problem. And we can do that with technological solutions. Again, looking at our cars and our buses, electric school buses, makes such great sense of our kids whenever they're picked up from school so they're not exposed to to diesel fumes and traffic exhaust that's put yeah. in the air. And we have these technological solutions, but then also natural climate solutions of looking at harnessing God's creation. And this is why I love even just something as simple, the act of planting a tree, especially the right tree in the right place uh, in a neighborhood that doesn't have tree cover. What do trees do? They suck up the carbon dioxide <laughs> naturally. God designed them to do that. They also filter out air pollution. They clean our air. They provide shade, which gives us relief from the heat, especially from during heat waves. It's seen that um, I did a study here of mapping um, how hot it was in the neighborhoods of D.C. during a heat wave. Mm-hmm. And what we found was there is up to a 15-degree difference. It was 85 degrees in one part of town. Over 100 degrees in another. And what was, what was the, the difference maker there? Concrete jungle. Concrete jungle yeah. and trees. Yeah. Um, and then you think about heat illness and heat death, heat stroke. Right. Just simply having those trees is, is a lifesaver. Yeah. Um, and again, talking about... Uh, the least of these, loving our neighbors, especially those most overlooked and marginalized in, um, in society today. We looked at the demographics of those neighborhoods. They were our lowest income neighborhoods, as well as our neighborhoods that had the most people of color. And again, we look at that and you just say, this is unfair. Well, this is absolutely unfair. And as the body of Christ and followers of Jesus... <laughs> This is something that we need to pay attention to and address. Yeah, that is so huge. And I just see this theme, this just overarching of like how all of this is so interconnected. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned, right, all the, the, the stats. And, I, and I've seen several of those studies myself of, of uh, negative health outcomes and exposure to uh, soil and PM 2.5 and those sorts of things. And, you know, often we want to look at, uh, you know, we'll just say, right, well, this, this person died of lung disease or whatever, and all these other factors or, uh, right, the, the studies that's now come out about bad birth outcomes and, uh, and pregnancies and, and, right, we cannot ignore, uh, right, the air that we breathe. 
<laughs> this is the air we breathe. And, uh, and, 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 but it's just one of those things like, I can't, I can't really see it. Right. And I, and I've got to, uh, right. I, I'm just, I'm just living my life here, but, uh, this is, this is, this is huge. Right. And the, these are, uh, these are points that we need to not only, uh, connect that it's part of caring for our neighbor and, uh, loving our neighbor, loving God. Uh, but it, but it's all interconnected. And, I, and I've been thinking about that more and about connecting those dots between, uh, human well-being and ecological well-being and, and uh, and I, I've probably said this before, but even trying to have conversations about creation care, quote, with others. And uh, because the temptation is to say these things and you think like, oh, well, this is a ministry or add-on thing over here. Mm-hmm. Right. We got to, you know, you do your women's ministry and you do your creation care over here. Uh, right. As if it's a separate thing. Yeah. Rather than something that's really permeated through all of this. Yeah. Right. And. Really, we should just be saying care, uh, right? And that's that's what we're trying to kind of get down to. Uh, and so, I guess thinking about all that, maybe trying to land this conversation a little bit, uh, right? And as someone who is a millennial pastor, and uh, you know, what do you, what do you believe are some of the ways the church? What, what would you love? How would you love to see the church engage uh, in this? And then it is. With that, as the question B, I suppose, what's maybe some of the advice uh, for for these people out there wanting to take more action in these steps? And uh, you know, again, often we can sort of get stuck focusing on the juxtaposition between our individual responsibility and political change. And how should maybe we think about this? Right? Often, maybe we can hear people say things like, "You know, I'm not a big political person," and or or anything like that, right? How would you how would you respond to that? Or how would you, you know, what sort of advice um, for, for us maybe do you have here? Absolutely. And Caleb, you really nailed it. It doesn't have to be its own separate ministry of creation care. This is how I, I think about it. Um, when I'm talking with churches and how I'm leading this in my own church, um, who are the people, the places, and the problems? that God has called your church or you as an individual to care about, <laughs> to serve. And then look for those connections. How is a more volatile climate, more extreme weather? How is an unhealthy environment, dirty air, dirty water, contaminated air, how is that impacting the things that that you already care about. And what we find is when you take that creation care lens and you apply it to the areas that you're already serving, you find new ways to to serve better. Um, To give an example, again, kind of with with looking at um, at air quality, looking at at trees. Um, You know, one... I identify as a person with a pro-life ethic of caring for life from um, from the moment of conception till natural death. And when we look at those statistics about air quality, it's really confronting. I mean, it, it just has that um, 
really underscores, again, the action, uh, the need for action now, not waiting seven years till it's 2030 or beyond, um, saving lives now, especially those most vulnerable, our children, born and unborn, all the way through adolescence and adulthood uh, to our seniors. Um, uh, and, and looking at being called in that area, um, looking at how we can help with that on just sort of a get your hands dirty, mobilize the church that is planting trees. That's wonderful. Um, but then also we look at those solutions and I think you, you really nailed it, Caleb, of, well, I'm just one person and I'm living my life. How do I clean all the air that I'm breathing? And the truth is, is that we can do our individual part, but we really rely on the rest of society and our neighbors and our communities and our, our policymakers to help us with this. Not one person can do this alone. And so that's where lifting our voice, especially as, um, as Christians, as people of faith, coming from a, a moral perspective, coming from um, a deeply scriptural perspective as people of faith, um, our voice matters. And so that's what at the Evangelical Environmental Network we uh, aim to do to help people just lift up their voices, share why they care with the people who have the ability to be influential with the decision makers. That's as simple as it is. And so to demystify politics and policy, um, engaging with our decision makers is, is just the same as talking to your neighbor, but uh, I, which is really important. And then making sure that we're talking with those decision makers so they hear from us. And so um, I, that's something that we do at EEN through our, our champions program of as these uh, policies and decisions are being made, helping connect uh, the body of Christ with opportunities to get in front of those decision makers and, and share why they care and what needs to be done to make that healthy environment and safe climate for all. That's cool, man. I love that. So we can, at, if, as a pastor, as a congregation, we can work with or engage through uh, EEN on, on a practical level through that, through that means, is that kind of what you're saying? Mm -hmm. what, what are some other tools that might be there for us? Yeah, so you'll also find um, ways of, again, if we're talking stewardship, the ways that we steward our church buildings and we steward our homes also folds into uh, good environmental stewardship and good economic stewardship. Um, what you'll find are resources for um, saving energy that saves you money, reduces carbon emissions, reduces uh, uh, air pollution, um, all while saving you money that you can apply to your particular mission areas at your church or um, uh, to put towards your own household savings. So you'll see, and there's all new uh, provisions uh, and uh, benefits uh, that have just passed in recent legislation, a 30% rebate for churches to go solar. <laughs> A grant to help with uh, doing energy efficiency upgrades that can save you 30% on your energy bill at your church. Wow. 
I as a and for the pastors of Ruth, this thing and a guy do, of course. Exactly. I have so fifteen percent on your church's clean energy. Uh, yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, that's what's up. That's what's up. And again, as as pastors and and thinking about sustainability, that economic sustainability is huge. Our stewarding the the resources that our congregants have entrusted with us with are huge and looking at energy efficiency is an incredible way to be good financial stewards yeah and uh reinvest that in your missions and so we'll find information about these new rebates these new opportunities uh for that but then also just more importantly first and foremost creation care is a discipleship issue and so you'll find resources for uh, learning how uh, more resources around just the um, the theology and the discipleship opportunities yeah. through creation care. And again, as you said, as we get out in God's creation and steward God's creation well, it points us back to the Creator mm. and to for a, a stronger relationship with Him. Love it. Uh, you got e in the website is creationcare.org. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Awesome. One of my favorite parts is there's a take action tool on there. I think it's still on there mm-hmm. that helps just really uh, make connecting with my local representative on particular issues that are going on easier. I know. And uh, right. And anyway, so uh, that that's really great. It's a great thing to check out. But yeah, thank you, Jessica. This is this is such a rich conversation. My temptation is to go another hour, but I, I think, man, I think that's a, a really great point there. I, I want to, I want to ask, like, to close this way sometimes. But what, what is something that, uh, what, what's a part of creation that, that you just love? That maybe will, something that really just is, is it for, for you know? For me, I love again going back to my roots in East Tennessee of sitting by a mountain stream. Mm-hmm. And uh, just hearing the water rushing over the rocks and being surrounded by just the greenery <laughs> of, uh, of the trees. And, and one thing that has, got me, has brought me great joy is um, here in the middle of D.C. is the third national park, Rock Creek Park. And by walking just about 10 minutes from my house in very bustle kind of urban city, I feel like I'm back in East Tennessee in the Smokies sitting next to this amazing um, mountain stream, it feels like. I get to share that with my city-dwelling sons and get them out into God's creation and um, what I am grateful for is that over 100 years ago, uh, the folks of this city and this nation decided to make it a national park. Yeah. And I get to enjoy that illusion we made 100 years ago. That's right. It's blessing me today. That's right. And it reminds me, okay, how can I plant a seed like that today that will bless generations to come? Amen. I'm going to drop this mic. <laughs> Jessica, thank you so much. This is just so good. And uh, grace and peace to all of our friends uh, listening today.
Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please be sure to rate, review, or subscribe and visit themillennialpastor.com for more podcasts like it.